you're going to be singing that all day long now. Isn't that a great little video, though? Tyler, uh, who is up at the booth this morning, made that a great job. We are now digging into some of the hardest, most complex, most highly debated passages in the book of Revelation, and I'm so glad we get a chance to do that. So before we really start the message today, I just want to say this. Good, godly men and women disagree with each other about the best ways to interpret these texts, and it's okay for us to disagree and still be united in Christ. It is important that all Christians hold to what we call primary doctrines, meaning Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He came in bodily form. He died. He rose from the dead, and he is the only way to heaven. These are primary kinds of doctrines. Then there are secondary doctrines, things like, uh, very, by the way, I'm very convicted on these, some of these things, but like, for instance, do we have to be sprinkled or immersed? We are an immersion-only church. I love my brothers and sisters, though they're wrong when it comes to sprinkling, but I will be in heaven with them one day. And uh, then there's tertiary doctrines, even those like third things, like exactly when Jesus returns, what signs must take place and what will they look like uh, right before he comes and have they all been completed and, and some of those kinds of things. So look, there's no reason for us to fight or argue about this. We can have healthy, God-honoring debate. It's one of those things that somehow has gone away in our world, like having a good discussion has somehow turned into fighting and name-calling. We don't need to do that. And that goes perfectly to what's wrong with our world today. See, in the very beginning, when God created everything, everything was at peace. There was peace with God, so there was peace with everything else. And by Genesis chapter 3, when sin entered the world, peace went away. Peace disappeared. So Adam and Eve are running into the, to the, to the bushes to hide from each other because they don't know how to get along anymore. They got problems because the gaze of sin was now upon them. And they knew that the gaze of God from their sin was upon them. They understood good and evil. It changed everything. Really, it wasn't far after that, Adam and Eve's uh, sons kill each other. Well, one son kills another son. Um, Cain kills Abel. He's jealous. Peace is gone. It's by Genesis 6, only a few chapters later, that there's so much ruin on the earth that God washes it with a flood and starts all over. And there's a reason why sin has wrecked our world in every fathomable capacity. And this isn't the way it was intended to be. There's a lot we don't know or understand. This is one of those... Uh, tertiary, even further down the list. There's a lot we don't know about the garden. There's a lot we don't know about the world before Noah. There's a lot, a lot we don't know. We must hold them loosely. We must hold our beliefs loosely, be convicted about the things that are absolutely primary and hold the rest and say, I think it's probably this. But here's the big thing. You get to the end of Revelation, chapters 18, 19, 20, 21, and God is restoring the garden. God is making all things new, the Bible says. So there's a new heaven and there's a new earth and there are people reigning with him for eternity. And I'll get to that in January. I'm studying it deeply now and my brain hurts. You can pray for me. It is fascinating. But here's what we know with absolute certainty. In the beginning there was peace and in the end there will be peace, but in the middle there is no peace. And the word in Hebrew for the word peace is a Greek word for peace, but it doesn't really mean what we mean when we say the word peace. Like, what we mean when we say peace is like no wars, right? Bunch of hippies running around, long hair, you know, whatever. That's not what it means. The, the Hebrew word for peace, anybody know, is the word shalom. And shalom has to do with this uh, mind, heart, body, life, 
prosperity, wellness, relationship. I mean, it is like this everything is good around you, except the problem is, have you ever had a season of your life ever where everything was always good around you? And if you have, because I just had this conversation with somebody a week ago, weren't you just waiting for it to go bad? You ever had that, right? You look at your spouse and you're thinking, you literally say to them, man, things are just going so good right now. Like, I'm afraid about what's going to happen next. You know why? Because we live in a fallen world where there is no shalom. And that's the foundation of the we're about to look at stands on. You can go ahead and get your app or get your space gadget, or get your Bible, or whatever you want to use. We'll have this on the screens for you, but Revelation chapter 6. While you're turning there, I just want to read this excellent quote by Eugene Peterson, because this sets up today so well. He says this, It would seem to guarantee that everything between the good beginning and the good ending will also be good. But it doesn't turn out that way, or at least it doesn't in the ways that we expect. And that always comes as a surprise. We expect uninterrupted goodness, and it is interrupted. I am rejected by a parent. I'm coerced by a government, divorced by a spouse, discriminated against by society, injured by another's carelessness. All of this in a life which is at its creation was very good and at its conclusion will be completed according to God's design. Between the believed but unremembered beginning and the hoped-for unimaginable ending, there are disappointments, contradictions, not to be explained absurdities, bewildering paradoxes, and each of them a reversal of expectation. And such is life on the earth that we live. So, now let's jump into the book of Revelation chapter 6, a Fun, extremely apocalyptic text. So the word apocalyptic is a word that comes from a Greek word, apocalypsis. It is a style, a genre of writing, and John milks it completely. There is so much that's going on here. What we're about to do is begin to see the first of three sevens. So there's seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, and uh, all of them are similar and yet a little bit different. The other two sevens, which we'll get to later, very, 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 very similar. They clearly parallel the ten plagues of Egypt and Exodus, and there's John is saying something there. But these seven are a little bit different because they focus in very specific ways to what's going Going on on this earth. Some say what will go on in intensity right before Jesus returns. I want to talk about that for just a second. Because people interpret this differently, we've got to leave some room for grace. However, basically there are some different camps. So some people believe that right before Jesus returns, there'll be this intense period of tribulation. Some people believe that Jesus will actually remove the believers from the earth before the tribulation begins. Others believe that the tribulation will begin, but halfway through, then the believers will be removed. And then there's people more like me that I land in this camp and say that these tribulations have been going on since the fall of man, especially for believers. And this has been continuing to go on. It's happened in Oregon recently when Christians were shot for saying they believe in Jesus and the head. It's happening in the Middle East with ISIS today. And part of the reason we're expecting things to get worse for Christians right before, part of it is because we live in a fantastic nation. Probably the best nation, in my opinion, I'm biased, that's ever existed. 
And so because we have been so blessed as Christians for so long and have had such freedom to worship and experience our faith, we have personally not experienced these intense tribulations, but they happen all over the world. And they have for 2,000 plus years. Many, many, many have died for their faith. But part of what we're going to see today is it's not just about dying for your faith. It's about the way the world works. Now let's dig in. Let's look at the four horses of the apocalypse. That just sounds fun to say, doesn't it? If Jesus doesn't return, there's two movies I really want to see. One is Apocalypse and the other is Star Wars. I'd rather see Jesus. It'll be a way cooler movie. All right, Revelation 6, verse 1. As I watched, the Lamb broke the first of the seven seals on the scroll. How many seals? It means completion. Then I heard one of the, how many beings? Four living beings with a voice like thunder. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, you need to go back and listen. I don't have time to recap everything. I looked up, and I saw a white horse standing there. Its rider carried a bow, and a crown was placed on its head. He rode out to win many battles and gain the victory. This first horse or horseman, I don't care what you want to call him, whatever it is, uh, has often been called uh, uh, conquest. Conquest. Here's the thing. There's so many things to chew on here, but I just want you to notice in this, each of these horsemen, the seven seals, the first four go together. They aren't separate. So the four horsemen really have to be seen almost as a package deal, and each one builds on the one before, and there's a message in all of it. We're going to look at all of them, but realize they go together as a package deal. Now, the other seals can be separated, but these first four, I remember four plus three is seven. In case you didn't know that, got to go back and listen to last week's message. However, these four go together, and because four so often represents creation and things that happen on earth, sometimes man, we see these four packaged together because this is the way it works in a sin-fallen world. The human heart longs for conquest. Rome, along with Greece right before it, we often refer to Rome as Greco-Roman, they loved conquest. They were trying to conquer the entire world and bring everything under the authority, first of Alexander the Great and of Rome. That's what most nations throughout the world have ever tried to do is to expand their borders, more power, more money, more rulership, more conquests. Except as conquest goes out, there's a fallout. There always is. This notice is here on this horseman is dressed in white. Now, white throughout the Bible can mean a few different things, but especially in Revelation, it means one thing, but it often means purity. But that's probably not the best interpretation here for this horseman. Often, white means victory. This is why later in Revelation, we see Jesus riding forward, and he's on a white horse, and he's got a tattoo on his leg. Sorry, parents. King of kings, Lord of lords. He doesn't really have a tattoo, but it is on his leg. And Jesus is seen riding a white horse. Why? Because he's victorious. There's also something fascinating here. Later in Revelation, we get to something called the Perusia. We'll deal more with this. But there's this thing when a Roman emperor's gone out to war and he's won the battle. He comes in riding on a white horse and all the people show up and they put on white and they're singing celebrations to their emperor who's shown up and who's won the battle. That imagery is used throughout Revelation. And so this white horse means he will be victorious. But I want to point something out here that is true for all of these horsemen that we really have to wrestle with and it makes us struggle but I want to make it clear what it means and that is this notice where the voice calling forth the horseman has come from it's come from the throne 
Who's seated on the throne? God. Now, what I would suggest to you is the best way to read that is not that the Bible is trying to say that God is causing war and murder and evil on the earth. What I would suggest to you is what John is trying to say emphatically to these seven churches and to us today is nothing happens on God's creation without his authority, and I mean nothing. So when it looks like everything is out of control, when it looks like God has lost his power, when it looks like God is uh, not omnipotent, when it looks like all those things are true, it's not true, and that's what John's trying to say. Because see, here's the reality. As we deal with what we're about to deal with today, all of us, all of us are going to face this at some point, all of us. And the question for each of us is, what will we do with God and the suffering of life? This horseman, notice he has a weapon of war. It's a bow. The Parthians in that day and age, they were experts at riding horses and shooting a bow at the same time. This is harder than walking and chewing gum, okay? Like, this is extremely difficult, but the Parthians who were against Rome, really on the outskirts of Rome, were excellent at this. And notice also, they have a crown on their head. Well, what could that possibly mean? Well, they have been given authority to rule and to reign. God allows sinful humans to rule and to reign on his earth. Even Saddam Hussein was given power by God to rule on his earth. Now, just like all of us, on the last day, we will stand before the great white throne, the victorious throne of God, and we will stand on the judgment day for ourselves. Your parents won't be there. Your pastor won't be there. Your spouse, your kids, no one else is going to be there. And we will each stand before God for either the good or the evil or possibly both that we've done in this body. So even though, say, a Saddam Hussein was given authority by God to rule on God's earth, he does stand and he is or has stood in judgment for what he did in the body. And the whole point to that is to say the authority comes from God, but that doesn't mean human people lead well. But the authority still came from God. It's still his earth. Let's look at the second horseman. Verse 3. Again, these build. Each one builds off the other. When the lamb broke the second seal, I heard the second living being saying, come. And then another horse appeared, a red one this time. Its rider was given a mighty sword and the authority to take what from the earth? Peace. Shalom. And there was war and slaughter everywhere. Part of what John is trying to get into our minds and into the minds of those, remember they're suffering, they're being arrested, they're being killed for their faith. Part of what he's trying to get into their mind is this is life on earth. When conquest goes out, when the human heart is bent on more and bigger and better and all it cares about is itself, when that happens, there is war in its wake. Now, John is borrowing, by the way, there's four horses represented in Zechariah, an Old Testament book. They're a little bit different. I think there's two reds, a brown and a, and a, and a white he's borrowing on that same kind of imagery he's making similar kinds of points it's more apocalyptic kind of language and text but he's making a different point part of what he's trying to say to the believers in these seven churches is this is really really not hard this is uh, easy for you to figure out guys this is what happens in the world we live in and you believer you will not be exempt from it 
Do not think just because you come to faith in Jesus Christ that there won't be war in your home, that there won't be war in your neighborhoods, there won't be literal, real war going on. And the question is not, is this going to happen, but what will you do with God when it does? Let's talk a little deeper about what this means. A second horseman, notice he comes to take away peace which leads to war, bloodshed. The red, you could say, equals bloodshed. Uh, blood is a very common red thing. I will also say it's very interesting. In the book of Revelation, red, if I'm not mistaken, I could be wrong, but I think in every situation it stands for evil. So we have a red dragon later. Red stands for something. Notice here it says, depending on your translation, it might say he has a, a large sword, a mighty sword, something like that. Really, the Greek here actually means large dagger. Just to make the point a little further, if you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 22, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, uh, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, Medgo, his little guys, they retranslated the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek when they were in Babylonian exile. And when they did that, the word they used here is the same word they used in Revelation. Now, imagine Abraham, 100 plus years old, taking Isaac up to the mountain to sacrifice his son. And what we tend to picture, we picture large sword as the medieval broadsword, right? Could you imagine old Abraham trying to get that thing up and his son on an altar and trying to get it up high enough to, like, Dad, what are you doing? That's not what's going on here. What he has is a large dagger. Now you may go, why is that relevant? Well, in the one sense, it's not relevant at all because in the one sense, you get the same picture. He's here to kill. That's what this horseman represents. However, if that analogy does mean something else, if John is drawing on that, if he's using that word for a reason and it fits in the context of Revelation 6 a little bit in just a moment, then this isn't just war for the sake of war. This is literally sacrifice. You see that? This is literally death of somebody laying something down. Third horseman. Don't you love apocalyptic language? They should make movies about this stuff. Oh, wait. Verse 5. When the lamb broke the third seal, I heard the third living being saying, come. I looked up and I saw a black horse and its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. It's not like dragon scales or fish scales. It would be like, you know, the old balancing kind of scales. And I heard a voice from among the four living beings saying, a loaf of wheat bread or three loaves of barley will cost a day's pay. And don't waste the olive oil and wine. And you go, what in the world is going on here? Let's take a look at the third horseman. And I'll explain a little more. The third horseman, he's been called many things. Um, famine, pestilence. I think if you look at these things together, if you see him coming, conquest and war. There's something we know is that on the tail end of every war is an economic uh, struggle, an economic strife. It happens in every war. And the ones who struggle the most are not the rich, but the poor. That's part of what John is trying to communicate. So we have black. Black can stand for darkness or grief. You know, if you get very sick, there's kind of a blackness. When people die and you show up at a funeral, what do you wear? Black. And so here in this text, we see this, but there's the scales. What are the scales weighing? The scales are weighing the way war and enmity ruins economies and peoples. If think about it. The poorest of the poor are struggling. However, the oil and the wine don't touch the oil and the wine. Well, who can afford the oil and the wine anyway? It's not the poorest of the poor. It's the rich. 
So while war comes because of conquest and the powerful get more power, the ones who will suffer the most are the poor. And to the people that John is writing to, many of them are very poor because they are believers. They're having a hard time functioning in society because they aren't going wrong with society's ways. And so because they don't participate the way everybody else participates, they're outcasts. Think about the implications of that, by the way, in your faith and in your life. I love this quote by a guy named Bruce Metzger. Um, i got to find the quote in my notes. He says this, Usually a denarius could purchase, that's, by the way, a day's wages. The New Living Translation just takes denarius out. But usually a denarius could purchase 8 to 16 times more grain than the amounts mentioned here. In other words, warfare is followed by inflation and famine. And then number four, the fourth horseman. When the lamb, verse seven, when the lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the four living beings say, come. I looked up and I saw a horse whose color was pale green. You may have a translation that just says white. Really, the translation here is better, and that's why they did this here in the new NIV, the, the, the new recent translated NIV. They also put in those pale green. How many of you guys watched like Popeye ever? How many of you are old like me? All right. I don't know what Popeye is. Eat your spinach. You'll know. Okay. Now, you remember like when Popeye would get sick, he'd turn kind of like a palish white green color. If you ever see a body or, or even a body of an animal, you've seen this recently, I think, in the news, wash up from the water and it's dead and it's got like this whitish green. That's the idea being used here by John. So there was a pale green color, verse 8. Its rider was named Death, and his companion was the grave. These two were given authority over one-fourth of the earth. Notice they were given authority to kill with the sword and famine and disease and wild animals. Now, this is pretty simple. This horseman, this fourth horseman, equals death. Sickness and death is a byproduct of conquer and war and suffering and death and Hades is what is the natural byproduct. What John is doing to the readers in Revelation, he's warning them and he's warning all of us, this is going to happen in your lives. And if you think it's not, it's because you aren't paying attention. And here's the thing, just because you love Jesus doesn't mean you'll be exempt. It's going to happen to your kids. Some of you experience this. Loved ones who've gone off to war and fought and died to protect the rest of us. Praise God for them. It happens in places like Oregon when crazy people show up with guns and they just start shooting people and they ask, are you a Christian? And it dictates where they get shot. And while America has been protected from this for quite some time, I don't think the future is real bright for us. And the reality for all of us is not, are these things happening? Are they continuing to happen? The question is, what will we do? And again, some people believe right before the return of Christ, it's going to get worse and worse and worse. And honestly, I don't know. Maybe. I don't know that it matters a whole lot to the families who lost a loved one in Oregon. Like, I don't know if it gets worse for them, does it? Or the people currently dealing with ISIS in the Middle East. Does it really get worse? Probably not for them. And the whole point then is for us as believers to say, this could be my reality today. This could be our reality in the next month or two. And will we be ready to hold on? Will we be ready to follow through whatever God has in store next? 
Because see, these four horsemen, again, remember the seven, we separate these four, they're not the end of the story. There's still three seals to come, and I have so much to cover, and probably not enough time, but I just want you to hang on to this question. Will you, when push comes to shove, when it's your turn, will you hold strong for your faith? Because there's something that happens for those who do. Revelation 6, verse 9. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of all who had been martyred for the word of God and for being faithful in their testimony. They shouted to the Lord and said, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge the people who belong to this world and avenge our blood for what they have done to us. And then a white robe was given to each of them. And they were told to rest a little longer until the full number of their brothers and sisters, their fellow servants of Jesus who were to be martyred, had joined them. Now, a few things, guys. There's so much. Like this chunk right here is a whole sermon. Realize that. So I'm giving you the overview version, the, the cliff notes. I don't, do people even know what those are anymore? I think we just buy the cheap version online, don't we? And then kids get in trouble. Okay. So part of what's going on here. So the four horsemen are done. They've got their war and conquest of bloodshed and death. And this is what happens in the world. And it's real. And we got to experience it and live in it. And then this fifth seal opens. And when the fifth seal opens, notice what happens. Under the altar in heaven. Now, part of it is Hebrews teaches, the Hebrew people believed that the temple in heaven will mirror the temple on earth. It'll be a bigger, more complete one. But Christians don't even agree exactly on what that means. And guess what? None of us know with absolute perfection until we get there and we see it. We go, oh, look how we all were right and we all were wrong. So we study these things and we learn our best, but we hold them loosely because the big point here is simply this. There are those who are now in heaven and they are crying out to God. And notice what they're praying. They are praying to God. So first of all, by the way, we'll talk about this more in January. We dig into heaven and hell and afterlife and what does it mean? I talk about how crazy kids seeing things is not biblical, but that's we'll get there in January. But for now, I just want you to see this, guys. Where are they? They are alive and where are they? In the presence of God. So your loved ones, who love Jesus, are alive and in the presence of God Almighty right now. They're not asleep in some casket somewhere. They are already alive. On the other side of your last breath will be one of two realities, alive in the presence of God or alive somewhere else. We'll get there in January. Hopefully it's enough to make you hungry to keep coming. Okay. But let me just point this out to you. Notice their prayer, verse 10. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge the people who belong to this world and avenge our blood for what they have done to us? This prayer sounds so much like David in the Psalms, does it not? We don't know how to pray this way. We don't know what to do with this kind of prayer. I mean, they are literally people who are dying for their faith and are saints in heaven and they're crying out, God, avenge our blood. God, come on. I was killed. I hung on. I was faithful. When are you going to show up and follow through? Now, I wonder if we had this kind of faith today that our God and our King is going to come through. He's going to be faithful. See, there's a problem here in the text, in our lives. You know what the problem is? <laughs> the problem is somebody's name is being slandered. 
Think about it for a minute. If we believe in God Almighty, and we do, and we believe that he is capable of doing all things, he is all-loving and he's all-powerful. So when God is all-loving and all-powerful and it doesn't look like he is, whose name gets put on trial? You've heard this, right? Maybe even some of you have wondered this. I have. Come on, God. If you could do anything, then why didn't you do this? Why didn't you stop that person from doing that thing, Right? When I was a child, God, why did you stop my grandfather or my uncle from abusing me? God, why didn't you stop it? And God, why didn't you stop that murderer or that killer? God, why didn't you stop Adolf Hitler? God, why didn't you do this? God, if you love and God, if you're all powerful, and God, now the believers, come on, God, you said you got our back. You said you're going to make all things good. When? When, God? And they're begging God to cry for an answer. They're begging God to move. They're praying to him and worshiping him and saying, God, do something. But there's a struggle in that because God's name has been put on trial from the evil and the war of this world. But look at God's response. Verse 11. And then a white robe was given to each of them. By the way, the word then in English always means the next thing, but the, the word then in Greek doesn't. It just means it happened. John's painting a picture for us that doesn't mean there's this time frame where they weren't without a white robe, and then they started praying, and God went, oh, I should probably give them their white robe. It's just a picture. But notice, what does white represent? What did I tell you white represents? Victory. So here they are crying out, avenge our lives, avenge our blood, avenge your name, clear your name, God. And he says, hang on, you are victorious. You are here with me. You will rule forever. Great job, guys. Great job, guys. But it's not time yet. There's still more that need to die. Look at verse 11. They were told to rest. By the way, I love that. Right after your last breath here, when your brain stops ticking, however that finally works, they're told to rest a little longer. Rest is the thing that follows this. Until the full number of brothers and sisters, their fellow servants of Jesus, who were to be martyred, had joined them. In other words, God knows the exact number. He knows exactly how many it's going to be. He knows when it's going to be, but we don't. Here's the hard thing, by the way. If you're, if you're considering Jesus, you've been checking out Kingsway or some other church, and you just landed here, and you're not sure what to do with this, and you've been watching maybe some online TV preachers, and you think, man, I want a blessed life, so I'm going to follow Jesus. I just want to warn you. Jesus says, consider the cost. Count the cost of following him because it is expensive, and it might actually cost you or your kids their lives. It terrifies me to think that someday a guy with a gun or a knife or a sword or a bomb might show up in my kid's school and put it at their head. And my son, who might be five or eight or 10 or 15, is going to be asked the question, do you believe in Jesus? And I can't... I can't fathom the sorrow of that moment. I can darn well (laughs) promise you I'll be praying that prayer. When, God, are you going to avenge my son's blood? But I hope and I pray if that day ever comes, they could say with bold confidence, yes. Yes. Absolutely. That's a terrifying thing to think about. And there are people all over the world who deal with that 
every day. Here's the thing for you to walk away with, friends. If you don't know Jesus, you're struggling with him. If you do know Jesus, you're struggling with him. Here's the thing to walk away with. Victory for us, victory for us is obtained through suffering. Victory is obtained through suffering. Not around it, not without it. It's actually obtained, accomplished through suffering. See, in, in America, we avoid suffering at all costs, right? Man, my back hurts. Take some pills. Man, I got a cough. It's been for two weeks. Go see a doctor. He already gave me some medicine. Have him give you more medicine. Make the pain go away as quickly as possible. We hate pain. We do. And I don't blame you. I'm one of us. We don't really know this, but this is what the Bible teaches us over and over and over again. Victory is obtained through us through suffering just like Jesus. Now here's the point. If you go all the way back, there's this fantastic text in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 53, and uh, we see the suffering servant. This is Jesus. Seven to 750 years before Jesus, we get this beautiful description of Jesus, but look at what that text says as it relates to the fact that peace, shalom, was lost in the garden, and peace, shalom, will be restored in the end, but we don't live in the garden, and we don't live in the final garden. We live in the middle. We live in this land of in-between where there's pain and suffering and war and death and pestilence and famine and all kinds of horror things and then we read this in Isaiah 53 and I just got some verses here 4 through 6 and 9 through 12 it says this yeah it was our weakness he carried it was our sorrows that weighed him down we thought his troubles were a punishment from God a punishment for his own sins but he was pierced for our rebellion crushed for our sins he Jesus was beaten so we could be whole he was whipped so we we could be healed All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We've left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins, the inequities of us all. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone. But he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and to cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. That's you. He will enjoy a long life. That's eternity. And the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. What does that mean? Through his pain, through his suffering, he will accomplish the plan of God. Verse 11. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will Make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. And I will give him the honor of a victorious, wearing white soldier. Because he exposed himself to death, he was counted among the rebels, he bore the sins of many and interceded for the rebels. We worship a king who has been martyred. So we don't cry out to him as one who doesn't understand our pain, our persecution, our suffering. We cry out to him as one who is a, as a man who's very well acquainted with what we deal with and he knows how to fix it. And he said, I will fix it. I will make good on my promises. So wear your white and hang on. You hold firm in the faith. You don't quit. By the way, did you know this? Satan has many, many, many tools in his toolbox. I actually think in some ways it would be easier for somebody to put a gun to my head and say, do you believe in Jesus or pull the trigger? Don't get me wrong. Leaving my family behind would be an unfathomable sorrow for them. 
I actually think it's harder to stay firm in the faith to the end. I think it's harder to persevere through uh, temptation, to persevere through trial, to make it through the daily doldrums of life that at every turn tempt us to quit on him and turn to a less wild lover than God himself and to be tempted by the things of this world and to quit. And some of you know that all too well because right now you have no peace. And when you finally admit it to yourself and to God, you know the reason you don't have peace is because you aren't chasing after God, you're chasing after something of this earth. You don't understand why you can't sleep at night because you're anxious. You don't understand why you can't rest because you're living for you. And we serve a Savior who said, I came to restore shalom to your body, to your heart, to your mind, to your marriage, to your family, to your community, and to this world. And so we live in the land of the already but not yet. The already but not yet. We have all of these things present and available to us in Christ Jesus our Lord. Is it finally complete? No. Is it a broken down version of it? Yes. But we stand on top of this hill and we look out at the next hill and we go, one day God's going to take us to that next hill called heaven. But until then, we have the power of the Holy Spirit living in us, the seal of our salvation. Everything we need is already in us. That's what Peter says. All that you need for life and godliness is there in you. You can have peace in this life, not just when you die, but here right now. How? Through the power of God in you. Revelation 6, verse 12. I've got to cover a huge chunk of stuff really quickly, stuff you would love for me to talk about, and because I planned really well, I'm not going to get to. I'm joking. Verse 12. I watched as the Lamb broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. The sun became as dark as black cloth, and the moon became as red as blood. Then the stars of the sky fell to the earth like green figs falling from a tree shaken by a strong wind. The sky was rolled up like a scroll, and all the mountains and islands were moved from their places. Before I keep reading, just note for a second, if all of that actually happened, is there anything left on the earth? If the sun is black, all the stars, first of all, we know this isn't possible, but let's just say all the stars, let's just say one star. How about the sun fell to the earth? Is there any earth left? This is highly figurative language. It means something. If the sky actually rolls up like a scroll, is there anything left? No. I mean, that's the easy answer, right? This is figurative language. You should not be literally waiting for this to happen. Why? Well, because there's another 15 or so chapters in the book. (laughs) This is important for how you read Revelation. And I've got more in the notes. You need to download download the app. I've got more in there than I always have time to cover. And hopefully I've given you some resources, some things to think about. There's plenty of room for us to disagree about these things. But I'm going to make the point of what he's trying to say and why it's relevant for us in just a moment. But just hang on to this for just a minute, guys. I believe that Revelation does something that we call uh, cyclical. And it's what we call recapitulation. Recapitulation just means recap. That's like, how many of you guys are sports fans? I mean, guys, come on, I know most of the women are here. Okay, men, a few sports fans. When SportsCenter wasn't about a, like a talk show because ESPN was trying to save their company, back when SportsCenter actually was SportsCenter, what they would do is recap. And recap meant preview of what just happened and sometimes looking forward to what's about to come. That was SportsCenter. Revelation is a godly sports center. It's 
recapping both what has been said and what has happened and also looking forward as a preview of what's to come. Now, just like in SportsCenter, it can tell us certain things that have happened and with specific detail, and when it looks forward, it can't always tell us with specificity. It gives us enough to understand, but it doesn't tell us specifics. Trust me, SportsCenter is a broken analogy comparing it to Revelation, but it gives you an idea. So what we see then is in the book of Revelation, there's this recapitulating over and over and over again. So it tells us about an event, it comes back and it tells us about again, it adds some details and then it comes back and tells us about again and adds more details and finally that leads up to the final culmination of all things and Jesus returns. Now in this moment we're getting the first preview of Jesus returning. Here's how we know. Look at verse 15. And also by the way you can count the number of people here. Then everyone, the kings of the earth, the rulers, the generals, the wealthy, the powerful, every slave and free person. How many? In other words, everybody all hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. Would it matter if the sun fell to the earth if you hid in a rock or a cave? Would it make any difference? And they cried to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us, here's the point, from the face of the one who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and Who is able to survive? In other words, one day Jesus will come on that victorious white horse. He's bringing with him the judgment, the wrath of God. And anybody who has not been marked by the Holy Spirit will stand before him. And on that day, they will see him and all his power and all his might and all his majesty and all his glory. And they will beg this world to crush them. Hide us from the wrath of this one. And here's the point, friends. If you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord, this may be all the reason to do so because we do not know the day or the hour. But when it comes, it'll be too late. And there will be a a revelation on that day of how we've wasted our lives on things that mean nothing. And Jesus tells a story about uh, if you realize you're going to go to war against somebody, you can't win the battle, what do you do? You send out a negotiator to, to, to negotiate the terms of peace. <laughs> Guess who the negotiator was? Jesus. Jesus went before the Father. He, as Isaiah 53 so beautifully told us, he satisfied the wrath of God. He restored peace to our lives. So in the midst of turmoil raging around us, we can have peace. But on that day, those who don't have it will know they cannot stand. Later in Revelation, I don't want to steal my thunder because I can't wait to preach it, but i got to wait. Later in Revelation, we see Jesus culminating for this massive last battle, and in the next verse, the battle's over. That's it. One verse, everybody's gathered together, the armies of the earth, to go to battle against God. The next verse, the battle's over. Why? Because there's no battle. You can't fight against him. You will lose. Some of you know this all too well as the Holy Spirit keeps pursuing you. And at every turn, you keep trying to do life the way you want to do it. And God keeps saying, no, it doesn't work that way. It's my way. That's it. You're like, why am I so miserable? And you've been blaming God. And what you need to do is stop fighting against God and surrender in humility and fight with God. Maybe today's your day. I'll give you a chance in just a minute. But before that comes... I want to uh, encourage you with a couple verses out of Thessalonians. 
church at Thessalonica was a fascinating church. They were so pumped about the coming of Jesus. Like Paul actually has to tell them, go back to work. Get a job. Have something to contribute because you don't know when it's going to be. Look at chapter 4, verse 13. And now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died so you will not grieve like people who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. You may die in this body, a believer. However, you can trust the one who's giving you the victory. And after going to a fantastic funeral for Zenimeeks yesterday, Amen. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace make you holy in every way and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless until our Lord Jesus comes again. God will make this happen for he who calls you is faithful. He's describing shalom. God has a desire to bring wholeness to your marriage, to your families, to your body, to your mind. If you don't have peace, then time to start partnering with God and pursuing peace, saying, God, why is there no peace in my life? What do I need to do to seek you, put you first, God? What is it that's going on? I meet with couples all the time. They have no peace. Why do they have no peace? Well, because one or both of them are not surrendered to God. I meet spouses who have no peace, and they can't figure it out, and they find out later their husband's been dealing with this private sin for a long time, and somehow it's been playing itself out spiritually, physically, emotionally, relationally. We don't understand it, but it is ruining the peace in their home, and when it finally comes out and they're finally able to surrender themselves to the Lord, there's peace in the home again. Now, if there's no peace in your home, is Jesus the king, the leader, the ruler of your life? Because he is committed to leading you back to shalom here and finally there. And I'm over, which is really surprising. I have a guest speaker next week. I pray you come. Dr. Johnny Presley was my theologian professor in school. Uh, great guy. He's going to teach us on Revelation 7. I just don't know if he's going to cover as much as you are going to want to know. So let me give you the fast version, which means I will be leaving a lot of questions on the table, and uh, it's okay because Jesus will come back. But I have to get to this last seal. Revelation chapter 7, verse 1. Then I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds so they do not blow on the earth or the sea or even on any tree. And I saw another angel coming up from the east, carrying the seal of the living God. And he shouted to those four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea, Wait! Don't harm the land or the sea or the trees until we have placed the seal of God on the foreheads of his servants. And then they're marked, the 144,000. And let me just say this now, since I know there's a lot of debate and some of you have been taught different things. And hey, we're allowed to disagree about these things. I believe with all my heart, the 144,000 represent all who will come to faith in Jesus Christ. I don't believe it's about national Israel. I believe it's about everybody who will come to faith in Jesus Christ, both Jew and Gentile alike gathered together. And in part, what Jesus is saying here is, wait, wait, wait. Destruction cannot come until I have placed my Holy Spirit, my seal on the forehead and on the heart of 
every single person who will believe in me. So Jesus is in some way clearing his own name. Look, I know believers who are victorious in heaven who've died for your faith. I know you want me to return and avenge your blood. I am going to do that, but not until every single person who has accepted me or will ever accept me is counted and numbered. And once they're all counted and they're all numbered, then I can come back. And this is one of the reasons why we take the gospel to the ends of the earth because they're not all counted yet. Your grandkids and your kids and your neighbors and people in India and Africa who don't even have the gospel near them, we must go. And we will suffer while we do. And look at verse 9. After this, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language, for standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb, they were clothed in white robes. And they held palm branches in their hands. And they were shouting with a great roar, Salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. And the text goes on. I'm going to stop there. I just want you to know that in heaven, everybody's gathered together. Whoever everybody is, everybody's gathered together. Every believer now gathered together. The lamb has returned. We are all gathered together. We're waving palm branches and we're singing praises to the lamb. The one who, look at that, salvation comes from. What does salvation mean? It means to be saved. Saved from trial? No. Saved from persecution? No. Saved from death? No. Saved from the wrath of God. We have been marked by his Holy Spirit. And I got to ask you this question is that true for you if you have not been marked by God sealed by his Holy Spirit man make today your day and then I'll close with this John 14 27 Jesus says this I am leaving you with a gift peace of mind and heart And the peace I give is a gift the world cannot give. So don't be troubled or afraid. When war and bloodshed and conquest and famine and death and marital relationship and strife in your family, when it's looming at every turn, there is a tendency to be afraid. And Jesus says, do not be afraid. Jesus, how? How can I not be afraid? Look at what I'm facing tomorrow. It's waiting for me. God, how can I not be afraid? And Jesus says, because I am with you to the end of the age. And while in this world you will have troubles, take heart. Because I've overcome the world. You can trust Jesus. To that end, I just want to pray and sing. The saints around the throne, when they realize who the Lamb is and what He's done, they gather to praise His name. And I just want us to do that. And listen, if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, you don't even know what that means. It's okay to have questions. But don't leave today. You don't know how long you have. Today, while we sing, would you just go to my left or right, talk to our staff, say, man, I'm I'm ready to accept Jesus as my Lord and my Savior. Let's all stand and I'll pray. God, we know that lack of peace reigns on this earth from a human standpoint. The world can't give us peace. 
Our, our president, our armies, our wars, our governments, our laws, they cannot bring us peace, but our king can. God, you are our king. And God, in the midst of all of the strife and the struggle of life, we know God, we know God, you are good, and we believe it. Even, God, when we're tempted not to believe it, we believe it. God, even when other people are doing us wrong in intense ways, we believe it and we trust you. We trust you. And when you know, God, you promise us, I give you a gift the world cannot give. And so we hang on to that, God. Give us peace that passes all understanding in the midst of life that we might, God, be your peacemakers on this earth. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name.